Our sermon this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Are you pleased to be with God's people this morning, church? Amen. Amen. It's good to be here. It's certainly good to have our youth back from camp. We trust that God was honored and God worked in your life. I've already heard good things and we're as well very pleased to have our Eagle Butte team back with us worshiping, trusting that God will do good work and has done a good work and continue to do so through your ministry. Genesis 1 and verse 26, hear now the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time in which we now can study your word, for you have seen fit to give it to us that we may know where all this came from, where we came from, and what we are doing here on this earth, where we're headed. And so we thank you for your word in which we now can study. We thank you that it is trustworthy, it's true, it is truth. And so we pray that you would help us to hear it. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your word, that you would open our hearts to receive it. Help us to find great joy and delight in it. We pray for the word that was proclaimed into the lives of our teenagers this week. We ask, Father, as we have been all week, that that word would bear great fruit in their lives, that they would fall more in love with Jesus and with you and live lives of passionate obedience and joyful submission for your glory and for their great joy. We pray as well for the word that was proclaimed in South Dakota last week and to the lives of teenagers and children and even adults. We thank you for those two children who bowed their knee to King Jesus and received him as their Lord and the many others who heard of the great gospel message. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, as you promised, call your sheep. You said you have sheep that are not of this fold, and you must bring them in, and they will hear your voice. And so we ask you that now that your voice has been proclaimed, will you not call those who are yours, that they may know you as their God and Savior. Help us, help all those who sit under your word this morning throughout this land, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 27th in 1831, the naturalist Charles Darwin boarded the HMS Beagle. He set sail south, first to Cape Verde off of Africa, and then to the Galapagos Islands off of South America to study flora and fauna. 
About 30 years later, in 1859, Charles Darwin wrote a book that would change the world. He entitled it, The Origin of Species. In this book, Darwin argued that the reality that we have, the life that exists that we see today, has come from lower or more primitive forms of life and has evolved into life that we observe today through a process he called natural selection. About 12 years later in 1871, Charles Darwin would apply his theory of evolution to humans, saying that we too have evolved from lower forms of life. I wonder, however, if Darwin's real voyage began before he ever stepped foot upon that boat. You may not know this, but Charles Darwin, before he became a naturalist, was studying to be an Anglican priest. And as he was studying, he began to wrestle with Christianity. He would write in his autobiography, Disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate. But at that point, when I was trained to be a priest, disbelief had at last become complete. He says, I can hardly see how anyone could wish Christianity to be true. It seems that this man, before he ever set sail, had already reached a conclusion that Christ does not exist and that God does not exist. And so he went out looking for a way to explain reality without God. And he found his theory. There are others who propose evolution who will say that there's no contradiction with Christianity. Nonetheless, in the, the, perhaps the, the number one spokesman for evolution during his day, the late Harvard professor Stephen Jay Gould, would say that Christianity and evolution can happily coexist side by side. He would write, no scientific theory, including evolution, can pose any threat to religion. For these two great tools of human understanding operate in completely different realms. Science is an inquiry about the factual state of the natural world. Religion is a search for spiritual meaning and ethical values. There's no need to debate these two. We can have them both. What do you think? Can Christianity happily coexist alongside with an idea of human evolution? Can we have our faith as recorded in Scripture and understand that we evolve from primates? Many brothers and sisters in Christ would say yes. Many I have encountered to say yes, I believe in the Scripture and I believe in human evolution. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church now fully embraces human evolution as the way in which we have come to be. But to be perfectly frank with you this morning, here's my struggle. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God, as I read it, tells me specifically that God created man. And He did so in a very special way. And so this morning, I don't want to consider these scientific theories that are bantered about. I want to simply want to consider the revelation of God, which He has handed down to us for thousands of years, time-tested truth, the creation of humanity. In our study of Genesis, we have now been considering the creation or the origin of all things. And my argument has, has been that, that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and all the way to Revelation 22 are largely given to us not to tell us scientific fact or things that we may find interesting, but largely told, given to us to tell us about God. That Genesis 1 is not really an explanation of all the... It's not giving us an answer of all the questions we may have. It's pointing us to the one who has made all things. 
That God created the heavens and the earth. And He did it according to Scripture in six successive steps, six successive days, as the Bible tells us. And on that last day, He would create man. There are eight acts of creation in these six days. The, the eighth is the creation of man. And it almost seems to me, once God has finished His creation, He then brings the apex of His creation upon this earth. Almost as if He had completed the house. He had hung the draperies. He had moved the furniture. He had stocked the fridge. And then finally, He brings man there to live. I believe all this world exists for us. I believe it is God's gift to us. I believe if humanity did not exist, nothing would exist that God has made. I believe this world, the animals, the birds, the fish, the trees, the sky, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, are all God's gift to us. All the way to reveal His glory to us, that we may understand who He is. And on that sixth day, He made us. He created us. I think this is important to know. I think it's important to know where you come from. Many people are fascinated with their ancestry. Right? Where, where do I come from? It helps them understand their identity. My children often ask, okay, so, so what are we? Well, we're mutts, right? We're, we're Americans. But there's a day, we, my, my family largely hails from Wales. There's actually a Carn Manor in Wales. I long, one day long to go visit. I don't know why, to be perfectly honest. I've never been to Wales before. But it's where I come from. I, I think it will probably help me understand who I am. I think where we come from helps us uh, understand our identity, understand who we are. I'm a Californian, by the way. I don't know if that's evident to you. For good or for worse, that's who I am. That stamp is upon me. You meet someone new, you ask them, where are you from? It helps us to know them. And I think Genesis 1 is very helpful, therefore, because it tells us where we have come from. It tells us who we are. It tells us even where we are going. It helps us to know how, therefore, we should treat each other. And what we are to do with this life, it gives us direction. I appreciate what Pastor Mark Driscoll said about knowing where we come from. He says, if you don't know this information, it will be like the universe is a stage. God is the playwright. We are the actors. And we walk out on the stage and have no idea what the play is about. We don't know our lines. We don't know who's the hero. We don't know who's the villain. We don't know where this is headed. I think many people live their lives like that. I think many people are sad and confused and frustrated with life because they simply don't know why they are here. They don't know where they come from, they don't know where they're going, and they don't know why they exist at all. They don't know their purpose in their life, and so they give themselves to a number of things. They give themselves to work, or they give themselves to, to their, their family, or to leisure, or whatever it is, just trying to find some purpose or meaning in this life. And I think if they would be quiet for just a moment, they would, they, they, this question would emerge in their heart, is this all? Is there something more? Well, there is something more the Bible tells us. It tells us why we are here. Do you know why you're here? Do you know your purpose? Why do you exist today? Why has God made you? Well, Genesis 1 is an incredible help for us. We see three things here in this scripture. I'm sure there's many more we could consider, but we shall consider three this morning. Number one, we are made by God. Number two, we are made in God's image. And number three, we are made for a work. First of all, consider that we are made by God. Verse 26, the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And again in verse 27, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. 
And so you see there's a very special act of creation taking place. In fact, um, things begin to slow down when God begins to create man. You see, here we have this divine discussion that's taking place, unlike all the other acts of creation that God does. Here in verse 26, he begins to talk, talk, have this conversation. Okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is what it's going to be like. And then even in verse 27, we see the first glimpse of poetry in Scripture. The first poem found in all of Scripture, here is verse 27. And you see, God is trying to focus our attention on this special act of creation. And that's exactly what verse 27 tells us, that we are created. It tells us this three times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man was created. Man was created. Man was created. God says in Isaiah, through Isaiah chapter 45, I made the earth and created man on it. Job 33 The Bible tells us the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so very simply, I would like to suggest to you this morning that you are created by God. That God has done this work. This is why I reject evolution. It's because Scripture tells me that it's not compatible with what what God has done, that He has made us. I know many Christians try to to, um, Christianize evolution. They call it theistic evolution. It's the idea that, yes, we evolved from lower primates, but we did not do so by the process of natural selection. We actually did it by divine guidance. That God guided the process rather than it just being random, and this is what we got. And many will argue that case. I'm not sure why they do. When I consider, to be frank, um, the evidence for evolution, I find it incredibly lacking. I don't find scientific or otherwise much evidence that we actually came from other primates. In fact, uh, I'm not alone on this. Philip Johnson, the famous law professor at University of Berkeley, writes, did a bacterium by gradual steps turn into a lobster or an insect or a worm? Is it possible that God could have done it that way? Well, that's a boring question. Of course it's possible. But if God is in the picture and all, then what is the evidence that he did change a bacterium by gradual steps into a worm? There is no evidence. It is not recorded in the fossils. It is not testable in the laboratories. It is something that if anyone believes it, they believe it on faith. Faith in evolution. And so I would agree with him and happily reject the idea that I came from an ape or a chimpanzee or other some silly animal. I don't know about you, but that's what Scripture seems to lead me, that God's Scripture does not allow it. You see in Genesis chapter 2, in fact, where we came from. Perhaps it's even more humbling than a chimpanzee. For verse 7 says, Then God formed man of, the, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So where do we come from? Dirt is where we came from. That's why you will return to dirt one day. And so God is very clear that you and I are made by him. And I happily say, amen. Number two, we see we are made in God's image. Again, verse 26 tells us, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Those are two terms that the Bible used synonymously back and forth. We're God's image bearers or we're like God. And we see this again in verse 27 as we've already read. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so man is unique, as we discovered last week, from creation. All other living creation is created according to its kind, according to Genesis 1. Plants, fish, birds, animals, all created according to their kind. But when God begins to describe the creation of man, he says it's not created according to its kind, but it's created according to my kind. He's like me. He's made in my image. And just not he, as we talked about last week, she as well. And so we see that we are made in God's image, that that berries make berries and goats make goats and God makes people. This is what he does. 
And we discovered last time that this is why the Bible says that you and I have value, dignity, and worth. We get our value, we get our worth from the fact that we are made in God's image. And no other place. And what this means is that every human being has value, dignity, and worth. Equal value, dignity, and worth. Even if they're criminals, we will treat them with value, dignity, and worth. Because they are made in God's image. Even if they are unborn, we will treat them with value, dignity, and worth. Even if they are old, we will treat them with value, dignity, and worth. Even if they are mentally capable or mentally incapable, even if they are attractive or not so much, even if they are rich or poor, even if they are white skin or black skin or yellow skin, we will treat them equally with value, dignity, and worth, for they are all equally made in God's image. We are made in the image of God, the Bible tells us. And what this means is that you and I, believe it or not, are like God. You are like God. Is that not extraordinary? You are made, you are placed upon this earth to display what God is like. You are like a picture of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at his image bearers. You're like a mirror that God has designed to reflect his glory to one another. This is why we exist. We are to show what God is like. And so when we love one another, we show that God is loving we forgive one another, we show that God is forgiven. We serve one another, we show that God is serving. We help one another, we show that God is, is, is helpful. God has made us and put us into his good creation to reflect his image. And every human being you've ever met is an image bearer of God. You're to represent him. This is why it's important what you do and how you do it. Because you're communicating something about God. You are his representatives, you're his proxy. You're his likeness. Of course, throughout the centuries, many have tried to pin down exactly what this means. What does it mean? What, in what way am I like God? Is it that I have hands or ears? Is that like God? Or, or what is it? What about me is like God? Some have suggested that we are like God because we are rational. That man above all uh, uh, physical creation has an ability to think and reason and plan. In fact, you see this in verse 28, that immediately after God creates him, he begins to instruct man in a very personal way, doesn't he? He says, be fruitful, multiply, etc. He begins to give him instructions as if man can comprehend that. that. That God understands that man has a rational mind. That we can, if you will, receive the word of God. Unlike any other aspect of physical creation. We can think. In fact, I read a very fascinating study on how we developed language. It was in Newsweek a number of years ago. How is it that human beings, the Newsweek want to know, evolved to have this ability to speak abstractly, even like we're doing this morning? And and many people said, we don't know. We can't figure it out. We have no idea how this came to be. And what I found particularly interesting is that throughout the world, in all the 7,000 different languages that humans speak, you know you can take any one language and translate it into any other language. Because they all have the same components, even if that language is developed in total isolation of any other language. Because God has made us in such a way that we can communicate with Him, and He can communicate with us, and that He can begin to instruct us, perhaps... We are made like God because we have rational minds. Others suggest that we are like God because we are moral beings. If we can receive God's word, we must be able to keep it. When we recognize right and wrong, all of us, it's somewhere in us. The Bible tells us, in fact, in Romans chapter 2, about the Gentiles who do not have God's word. Paul says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even... Excuse them. It's on our hearts. 
this moral compass. I never had to teach my children what evil means. They just understand it. I never sat down and said, let me tell you what evil is. It's intrinsic in their hearts. They're moral creatures. This is why we hold each other accountable. Our societies hold other people accountable. We don't hold other physical creations accountable for wrongdoing, for evil acts. But we do for, for, for humanity. We're moral like God. Still others suggest that the image of God is that we are relational beings. Some see this here in verse 26. When the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's interesting here because you see God is speaking differently. Up to this point, it's let there be, let there be, let there be. And all of a sudden, God begins to have a dialogue, a conversation. Let us, he says. We see this elsewhere in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 22. Man has become like one of us, God said. Or in chapter 11, verse 17, let us go down and confuse their language. Well, who's God talking to? I mean, who's he having this conversation with? Many have said, well, it's just this way of uh, making God look majestic. They call it the majestic plural. When God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Jewish theologians have always said he's speaking to angels. I'm not quite sure I understand that because we're certainly not made in the angel's image. And nor did the angels actually make us. I think it's obvious, at least to me, who God is speaking with. Himself. That we know that God is plural. That God has eternally existed as one God manifested in three separate persons. We call this the Trinity. We believe in a triune God. And so God, when he decides to make man in in his image, he does not say, let me make man in my image, but let us make man in our image. And we see here in Scripture that, that God is a relational being. He has never existed as a solitary individual. He has always existed as a family, if you will, as a father and as a son and as the spirit. And if he is a God, intrinsically a God of relationships, and he makes us in his image, are we therefore not relational beings? Are we not created for one another? to have these relationships with each other. This is perhaps why in Genesis 2, God will say it is not good for man to be alone. Right? We don't like to be alone. Um, we, we want to be with people. We, want, we search for those relationships, whether it be a spouse or children. We long for them. My children uh, and I and Allegra, we were watching this nature show that's on Discovery Channel, North America. I don't know if you... You're watching. It's extraordinary. And, and we're seeing all that God has made uh, throughout this land in which we live. And, and they love it. But every once in a while on this show, the, the, the mama bear, for instance, will, will kick out the cub. And the cub is to go off now and never see his or her mother again. And all my kids think, that's so sad. It's sad. Why is that sad? Because there's something in us that is designed for relationships. In fact, I, I took my, my three oldest children backpacking with me uh, this week. We, we did a 20-mile loop in the Shenandoah National Park, um, and we had a wonderful time. And, and we, we hiked about seven miles each day and then set up camp. And we all crawled into the, to the tent at nighttime, and my dad was with us to, to sleep. And we all have our own sleeping pads and our, our own sleeping bags. But you know what my children do? Once we're in camp, and once I think perhaps once they think Daddy's asleep, they kind of crowd over next to Daddy. Right? And I, got, I wake up with a head on my chest and a, another head on my belly and a head down by my feet. Right? It, I, I, I'm bringing pillows next time. Um, but, but they all, 
they all want, they all want to be next to their daddy. We, we, we have this in us, this longing for relationships. I, I think that's perhaps part of God's image in us. I, I think we cannot accurately reflect God, at least completely reflect God, in isolation. I think this is why we have a church. I think this is why God does not save people, but he saves a person. The Bible is constantly talking about there is a church, there is a people which God has drawn to together. Because how we treat one another communicates about God. This is why we value family. This is why we value one another. This is why we live in community. This is why Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, Father, make them one as you and I are one, so that the world would know that you have sent me. You see what our great defense for our faith is, that what we believe is true is how we treat one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples. How you believe in me, how you obey me. No, it's how you love each other. And we begin to communicate something about God in the relationships in which he has given us. He has created us for relationships. And not only relationships with one another, but relationships ultimately with him. We see in Genesis 2, he walks with man and and talks with him and provides for him and and blesses him and, and gives him wonderful things. We're able to know God and to love God and to worship God because we are like God. This is perhaps what it means. But there's a problem, isn't there? You and I are not like God the way we are supposed to be, are we? Do you feel like God today? Did you wake up this morning and say, I am just like God? No. Nor did I. The image has been stained, hasn't it? The image has been marred. We are like a shattered mirror. We still reflect. But we do so poorly. It began when Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided they didn't want to be like God. They wanted to become God themselves. And ever since, we've been running and hiding from him. So we need to be recreated. We need to be, as the Bible says, redeemed. We need to be transformed. And this is what Jesus does. You see, Christianity is not simply how you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. God wants more than that. He wants more to forgive you. He wants more than to give you eternal life. He wants to recreate you. He wants to restore his image in you. You are this great recreation project that God has for you. And he's already beginning to recreate your mind. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3 that we are to put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Our mind is being renewed. We can begin to think right thoughts about God and think the thoughts that God thinks. Our our moral uh, reality is being renewed, isn't it? The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that, again, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, what he's doing is he's, he's sanctifying us. He's making us more and more like we are supposed to be. Namely, God's image making us like Christ. He's restoring our relationships. This is why scripture over and over tells us how we're to treat one another within the church and within our family, with children and etc. So that we can more and more accurately reflect like God is by how we treat one another. This is what God is doing in our life. And I want you to hear this this morning, church, because somehow in America we've reduced the gospel to this idea that we are forgiven of sins and we get eternal life, and that's kind of it. That's the end of the story. What is the gospel? It's how I get forgiveness. It's how I live in heaven forever. It's how I avoid hell. But I'm telling you, God wants so much more than that. 
The Bible talks about this idea of redemption, taking you from a place of slavery and bondage and, and moving you to a place of delight and hope. The Bible talks about transformation. It talks about repentance. But I think we, we sometimes ignore those ideas because they require too much change in our lives. So often the church in America, I think we just, we just, we just want our sin taken care of. We want to make sure that when I die, we're okay, and we're just then going to live life however we please. And we just hope God falls around and sprinkles blessing on us day by day. But this idea of following Christ, taking up my cross, denying myself, this idea of reorienting my entire life so that I could image forth God, that I could reflect Him, this idea of repentance that the Bible talks about, well, that just seems too radical. That's too extreme. So I'll take a little forgiveness. I'll take some grace. But I'm not sure I want much more than that. We love this verse in Ephesians chapter 2 when the Bible says in verse 8, For you, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest man boast. Right? We love that. But that's where we stop. We, we don't go on to the next verse, which tells us why we've been saved by grace. For or because you are Christ's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to, for good works, which he has prepared beforehand for us to walk into. This is what he wants us to do. He wants to recreate us. And one day he will perfect that. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. One day he will perfect you. When you step into eternal life, you shall be perfectly like Jesus forever. As he recreates you in his image. So I ask you this morning, who are you? Who are you? You ask me that, I could tell you I'm Stephen Carr and I'm from California. I pa- I'm a pastor. I'm married to my high school dream. I have seven children. That would be an accurate answer. But perhaps a more accurate answer, if you were to ask me who am I, I would tell you I am a created being. Made like God. To reflect him. And show people what he is like. I do that as Stephen Carn, a pastor from California who married in my high school dream and has seven children. This is who we are. I think this, this supersedes our family identity, our national identity, our, our, our family identity. We are made in God's image. We are to communicate something about God. This is why every time you, we sin, we blaspheme. When you cheat, when you lie, when you break a vow, you're actually communicating that God is like that. This is what God is like. Let me show you what he's like. And then you go off in some act of rebellion. You're actually communicating untruth about God as his image bearers. And so I wonder this morning, does, does the fact that you are God's image bearer, that you are like God, does that impact you anyway? Does that have a, a stamp upon your life? I believe it ought to. And we see thirdly this morning that we are made for a work. After God makes man in his own image... He gives them a work to do. In verse 28, we see it. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Here we see five commands given to God. They're all listed there in verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. 
I think you can really summarize that into two commands. The first being to fill the earth. The second, to form the earth. To fill the earth and to form the earth is the work I believe God has given us. This makes sense to me because we are made in God's image and what has God just done in the first five or six days of creation. Well, we saw in verse 2 that the earth was formless and void. It had no form. It had no inhabitants. Days 1 through 3, God forms it. Day 4 through 6, God fills it. He then creates you and I in his image. And he says, okay, you now, since you're my image bearers, you do what I do. Go form the earth and go fill the earth. Just as I've shown you. We're created like God. And we have this God-like privilege to do this great work. And so let's consider this work. First of all, we are to fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, he says. So we're fruitful, multiply, in order that the earth may be filled with God's glory. Now, I know I've said this before. I'm sure I will say it again. God tells us to have children. I say, amen. We are to fill the earth. Children, as we talked about, I know, a couple weeks ago, are a blessing. The problem is that the Western world has stopped having children, largely. For instance, in Europe... The birth rate throughout Europe is 1.4 children per couple. In order for a culture to sustain its population, the birth rate needs to be 2.1. And so in order for Europe to even sustain its population, it must do it through immigration, bringing other people in. It can no longer sustain itself. The birth rate has fallen so much. And the reason why, well, in fact, I found this uh, statistic interesting. France is in such dire condition. I think their birth rate is about 1.2 that there's actually a suggestion in the French parliament that they are going to begin to pay couples a monthly stipend of $1,250 for every child they have above the second child. And so I'm looking at France rather seriously. <laughs> not sure I want to live there, but that sounds pretty nice. They will pay you over $1,000 a month to have children. This is where they're at. Why? What's happened? Well, one... Sociologist Noah Pollock, I appreciate his answer. He says the explanation for Europe's turn from reproducing its civilization is in fact as simple as how children themselves are viewed. People avoid having children not because they are irreligious, lack financial means, or fear the possibility of divorce. Rather, people do not have children because they do not want them. They find the curtailment of personal freedom and the assumption of decades-long obligation inherent in parenthood unattractive. And they do not want to accept the basic restructuring of life that having a family requires. This is not a product of objective economic or social factors. Rather, it is a subjective judgment about the meaning and purpose of one's life. I read scripture, Genesis 1 in specific. God makes man... The first words out of his mouth are, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God values to him. He wants us to have him. Today in America, the dream seems to be we're going to have a couple kids, a few kids perhaps as we possibly can, and then we're going to get them out of the house as soon as we can so we can get on with life. The biblical dream is being an 80-year-old man with an 80-year-old wife, and there with your children and your grandchildren, And if you're blessed, you can even see your great-grandchildren before you. In fact, the scripture tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 10, He is your God, who has done wonderful and terrifying things that you have seen with your eyes. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. 
See, this is God's blessing. In fact, the Bible tells us that one of the purposes of marriage is that we would have godly children. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15 Scripture says, did he make them one? He's speaking about marriage. Did he unite them as one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? What is God seeking in marriage? Answer, according to the prophet, godly offspring. That's what he's seeking in marriage. That's why God creates married couples. Now I understand fully that we live in a fallen world and many suffer under this fallen world and are not able to have children of their own. And I imagine that is a terrible burden to bear. But for most of us, God wants us to have children. And not just children. You notice Malachi 2.15 says, godly children. Right? It's, it's so easy to have children. We got that down. Raising godly children, that's the difficult thing. Why does he want godly children? Well, because he wants his image about this world reflected. And so we are to raise them as godly children, that they could image God to one another. Now, I believe here in Genesis 1.28, when he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he, he's not just simply speaking about children. Now, in fact, I think the New Testament has expanded this concept. And when Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples of all nations, I think in some sense he is reiterating this command given to us in Genesis 1.28, that we are to bring people into the kingdom, that they can bow their knee to King Jesus, and that they can reflect the image of God to the nations and to each other. And so I think what this team did in Eagle Butte is very much in keeping with Genesis 1.28, as they invited people to come into the kingdom, as they sought to be fruitful to multiply God's kingdom. And so we see this command given to us. We also see the command that we are to form the earth. Specifically, we are to subdue it and have dominion over it. We are to make it a wonderful place to live, God says. And so creation is finished, man is made, and and he's told, okay, I've made this world for you, now I want you to take care of it. We take care of it. We see some of this in Genesis 2. That he brings the animals before Adam and he begins to name them. God says, I want you to tend and take care of the garden. Of course, this is more than than gardening. I think when God says, subdue the world, have dominion over the world, he's saying, I want you to make this world a wonderful and incredible place to live. And so I I think we're obeying this command. When we, we build a home, or care for a child, or heal the sick, or protect the nation, or educate a, a, a children, or pass a law, or enforce the law, or write a song, or preach a sermon, or, or lead a ministry, or cook a meal, or fix a car. I think we are making this, this is called a cultural mandate by theologians. We are making culture a wonderful place in which we are to live. We are doing the work that God gives us, and we are doing it to His honor as we are his stewards. We're like Pharaoh. We're like, excuse me, like Joseph. And God is like, if you will, as as Pharaoh gives Joseph the stewardship over the land, he's entrusted Joseph with this land. And and the land is underneath Pharaoh, uh, Joseph, and Joseph is underneath Pharaoh. We're God's stewards of his estate. And, And we'll be accountable for it. He's made this very good, as we saw. And now he gives it to us, tells us to care for it. Rule over in a way that pleases him. I see that we're going in two different ways in our day. It seems like we are tend to spoil this world through greed and disregard, or we tend to, at least where I come from, be ruled by it and often even worship it. See, our responsibility is not to ignore it, not to leave it untamed, and it's not to destroy and to ravage it. It's rather to use it for God's people and for his glory. It's hard, it's frustrating. This work that God gives us is difficult. 
Israel understood this. They knew what it was to live in a barren land and they knew what it was to have a barren womb. We continue to struggle with the commands that God has given us in this world. And I think we, when we do, we struggle to obey what God has told us to do here. We are in a sense longing for a time in which it will not be difficult to do this which God has called us. I appreciate what John Eldridge wrote in his, his parable that he gives in the journey of desire. He talks about a sea lion who had lost the sea and lived in a desert where it was dry and dusty. But something inside that sea lion longed for another place, a place he was made for. He writes, how the sea lion came to the barren lands, no one could remember. It all seemed so lo- very long ago. So long, in fact, it appeared as though he had always been there. Not that he belonged in such an arid place. How could that be? He was, after all, a sea lion. But as you know, once you have lived so long in a certain place, no matter how odd, you come to think of it as home. And sometimes we think that this is our permanent home. This is what we're made for. Well, friends, there's a time coming when we shall actually go home. Christ shall return and he shall renew this earth. And on that earth, we shall continue these, to obey these commands. This new earth in which God creates, we will rule there. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy, we will reign with him. Or Revelation 22, the Lord their God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And upon this new earth, not only will we have this ruling responsibility, it will also be filled with God's image bearers. Scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. You see the commands that are given to us here in Genesis 1, one day will be perfectly fulfilled for all eternity. This is what he promises to do. We sing about it. This is my Father's world, we say. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. And on that day we shall live with God forever, and we shall obey Him perfectly as His image bearers. We shall only do so if we have bowed our knee to Christ. Perhaps you are here this morning and you're not a Christian. May I tell you that God has made you? You may not believe that. But I have a revelation from God that has been recorded for thousands of years that billions of people hold to be true. You are made by God. In fact, not just made by God, but you are made like God. God wants to restore you. God wants to bring you back into his kingdom. You have alienated yourself by sin and rebellion. And rather than judging you, God in great grace and mercy has sent Jesus Christ to die upon a cross to be a substitute for your sin. To pay the penalty that is due upon you. And if you will bow your knee to King Jesus... He will accept you into his family. He will forgive you of your sins. He will give you eternal life, but he will do more than that. He will begin to transform you and recreate the image of God in you. You can do that today. You can give your life to Christ. You can have that new life that he promises you. And for the rest of us, Christians, do you know your purpose? You know why you're here? You know why God has made you? Why he knits you together one day in your mother's womb? Well, so that you can reflect him. You can show the world what God is like. by How you speak and how you act and how you love and what you do. I think as Christians, our lives ought to be different. We ought to be like God. We ought to approach our careers and our families and our children and our spouses and our hobbies 
and our money in a way totally contrary to what the world is. Not in a way that they feel judged by it and and put off by it, but they feel actually intrigued by us. That they may come and ask, why do you live this way? And that we may tell them that God has made them just like us and He has made us to be like Him. And God, Christ is working that in us. Do you know Christ? Do you know God? Do you worship Him? I pray that this truth would be important in your life and that you would endeavor to live it out. I want to be like God today. I want to reflect Christ today by His help. Let's pray for that help. Father in heaven, we ask that you would do a good work in us. I pray that you would help us to understand that this relationship that we have with you is not simply about the forgiveness of our sins, though it is that, and wonderfully so, and we praise you for that. But Christ, you have come and died upon the cross and have been raised from the dead, not simply just to forgive us, but to begin to renew us to recreate us, to restore us, to make us like you. One day you will complete that work, for your word says that we all are predestined to be conformed to the image of the beloved Son. And yet in the meantime, I pray that we would reflect you well. I pray that we would show one another what God is like here in this church. I pray for this church. As we endeavor to live in community, In great diversity, I pray there would be unity. Help us. Help us to be united as one. Lord Jesus, you pray to the Father that we would be one as you and the Father are one. We need your help. I pray for our marriages. I pray for how we parent our children and how our children honor and obey us. Will you help us? Help us to live differently. Help us to follow you. Help us to find great joy and delight in this great purpose you've given us to be like you as we fill this world with your image bearers and as we make it a wonderful place to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.